Welcome to the Consulta Cairo podcast, brought to you by the Australian Chiropractors Association. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. These podcasts are all about helping you find health and wellness in your life. On the podcast, you'll be hearing from various experts on a range of health-related topics. These experts will present the latest research and offer tips for you to self-manage health issues and maintain good health. You'll also learn a little about chiropractic and what role a chiropractor might have on your health team. And now, it's over to your host, Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to the Consult a Cairo podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Now, before we dive into today's podcast, if you haven't already done so, remember you can follow us by just hitting the follow button. You can also share this podcast with your friends and family so that they can achieve their best health and wellness. Today is all about vertigo. Uh, if you've experienced this disconcerting and at times debilitating problem, you'll know that uh, it's not a pleasant experience. Uh, the nausea, the dizziness can really have a major impact on well-being. In our podcast today, we're not only going to talk about dizziness, but have a general focus on understanding what dizziness is and isn't, and in particular, hone in on the most common cause of dizziness, which is benign positional paroxysmal vertigo, or BPPV. Joining me in the Consulta Cairo podcast today is chiropractor Dr. Carlo Renardo. Now, Carlo has a PhD in vestibular rehabilitation, and his business Brain Hub specializes in dizziness, concussion, and migraines. So he's well equipped, equipped to share information about vertigo and BPPV with us today. Hi, Carlo. Welcome to the Consulta Cairo podcast. Hello, Anthony. Thanks for having me on board. Starting off, what exactly is BPPV? BPPV, as you mentioned in your intro, is is the most common um, inner ear or vestibular-based condition that there is. Um, it's the one that presents with uh, vertigo or the sense of spinning. I guess to to orientate people why and how and what it is all about, it, you've got to go into a bit of an anatomy trip here. And I know the audience is is for the lay people, but I think it's important to understand what happens with these little rocks and crystals in our inner ear. Um, we have, you know, most people are aware of, we've got an outer ear, we've got a, a middle ear that unfortunately can get, um, you know, gluey with infections and things, but we also have an inner ear. This inner ear is made up of two parts, one of which is our hearing part of the inner ear, uh, otherwise known as the cochlea. The other is our vestibular portion. The vestibular part of the inner ear helps us orientate, helps us give us a sense of where we are and what direction are we moving and helps us orientate us to gravity. Um, and to enable this to happen, these little calcium carbonate crystals um, sit, and they're, they're otherwise known as otoconia, technically they're called otoconia, um, but most people just call them little crystals. These crystals uh, are a very important and natural part of our inner ear that give us that sense of movement. So they are a normal part. However, for various reasons, uh, and this could include trauma, like a head injury or a whiplash, um, or the aging process. And unfortunately, some demographics 
uh, are a little bit more prone. We find that middle-aged women tend to have this more than others. Uh, we believe there might be a hormonal aspect that might relate to this as well. But these little crystals are embedded in our inner ear. And they're held together by these little linkages, these little links that hold these crystals together. As we get older, these linkages start to break and frail. Um, the crystals themselves also start to become dehydrated and they can fragment or break off. And this is just a natural process, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. These little fragments break off. And when you lay down at night, um, they accumulate because they're heavy. They're, they've got a heavy mass to them. They accumulate. And then when you roll over in bed, um, this mass of little broken calcium carbonate crystals causes your inner ear to, to stimulate. And it gives you that very intense and violent sense of spinning. Um, mm. So that's that's basically what happens with BPPV. Now, I want to pick up on that word spinning because I use dizziness in the introduction. But to be really um, strictly correct, it's not dizziness, isn't it? Is that there will well, at least there's a slight difference between dizziness and vertigo, which is important for practitioners because that will tell us what the possible cause of that spinning or dizziness will be. Do you want to just um, expand on that idea? Yeah, you're exactly right. It's uh, seeing many patients with dizziness and vertigo, they're often used interchangeably by patients who probably don't know otherwise. They just get that sense of movement and they say, well, I'm dizzy. But there is definitely a difference between the two. And clinically for a practitioner, it makes a very big difference to understand what exactly are they describing? Is it a sense of spinning and rotation where you or the world spin? And that's classically known as vertigo. Or is it a sense of movement like rocking, swaying? Um, do you feel lank, uh, uh, faint, lightheaded, woozy, um, unbalanced? These are classically other descriptors for dizziness. So vertigo is a sense of spinning, and really everything else is described as dizziness. But understanding each of those symptoms correlate very closely with a particular condition, which, mm. as we know as clinicians, to be able to give someone the best care possible, diagnosis of what it is, is vital. Of course. So if someone genuinely has BPV, they will get, as you've said, that sense of spinning either themselves or they feel the world is spinning. Is there a particular pattern to that spinning? And are there any other symptoms that might uh, draw someone to think that they've got BPPV? Well, yes. In the name, it has positional uh, as, as part of the BPPV acronym. The positional is really important because what it means is it really is only provoked or tripped off with head position. So if you're saying that I'm sitting still and all of a sudden I got vertigo, so it must be BPPV, it can't be. BPPV is positionally provoked. So the key symptoms are there needs to be a... a um, a factor of movement. So either they're rolling over, you're bending your head down, you're looking up to the ceiling, you're looking over your shoulder. There needs to be a sense of um, movement. The second thing is, is that it's typically very immediately acting, meaning it happens either instantaneously or after a few seconds. After you move, you get the sense of vertigo. It's also mm. very short acting. 
It only lasts typically seconds, maybe up to a few minutes. When our patients say to me, oh, I feel vertigo and it lasts all day, that's not, <laughs> that's not um, BPBV. Um, the other thing is, is that often people feel very nauseous, as you would expect. They're often very, um, they have difficulty walking because the room is just spinning. Um, the other telltale uh, symptom, although it might be a little bit difficult for one to experience themselves, is that their eyes start to beat and move. And we mm. refer to that as, as a nystagmus, probably more for either a family member or a practitioner to note with a patient. Yes. Now, as disconcerting and severe as the symptoms for BPPV may be, it is, as is suggested in the name, benign. And by that, I mean it's not life-threatening. But there are many uh, causes of dizziness, fortunately, most of which are benign, Um but how do we know if someone's getting very severe vertigo that this isn't something serious like a brain tumour or, or even a stroke in progress? Yeah, look, it's having not experienced it myself, I can't say firsthand experience, but I see patients every day of the week that have acute episodes of BPVV and to tell them otherwise that it's a benign condition and that it's, it's all fine, <laughs> it, it doesn't work. They are no. fearing their life. And for good reasons, look, it is... You know, you know they, they, they fear the worst, and the worst is stroke. And one of the most common, and people are often calling uh, for paramedics, and they're often presented to emergency departments. But fortunately, many people are, are, are cleared because it's not anything sinister. I guess the, the real difference from a, a patient's perspective, there is some very clear differences between BPPV and a stroke. The first is with a stroke, there are many other typically many other more serious symptoms as well. They include difficulty swallowing, chewing, speaking. They have difficulty with, um, they, have, they experience sensory changes like pins and needles and numbness in different parts of the body. They might have paralysis or weakness either in their face or in their arms and legs. So they, that is definitely not a good sign and one that you need to call a paramedic for immediately. For a practitioner, particularly those that have trained and that have done some vestibular work, there are more, there are other clinical signs that can help differentiate them. And they include the direction of those eye movements that I mentioned before. Yeah. Uh, and that's called an nystagmus. Also, the preceding history. If they've had multiple of these, then you can be fairly comfortable that it's probably going to be another episode of BPPV. Um, so, you know, clinically, the astute practitioner should be able to fairly comfortably delineate between one and the other. Yep. Now, something that um, I guess isn't uh, absolutely life-threatening, but uh, can sometimes be similar to BPPV, uh, and that's migraine. And I'm thinking particularly of something called vestibular migraine. Is that word vestibular again. Um, how do we distinguish between a vestibular migraine and BPPV? Again, there are, um, with all vestibular conditions, to be fair, but in particular, vestibular migraine and BPPV, their history, presentation uh, are very distinct, whilst they both have vertigo as their main symptom. The length of time, the preceding events, remember, with BPPV, it's positionally provoked. So mm. it's the moving of the head that makes it worse. With, with migraines, it normally lasts for hours. 
um, sometimes even a, even a day. Um, there are other factors that contribute to it, like uh, lights and sound, uh, pressure, um, uh, dehydration, foods that we've eaten. We know the classical environmental and lifestyle factors that are related to migraines. So again, there are the, the, the presentation in terms of how long it lasts um, and the provoking position is a telltale sign, but also the factors that have contributed to it with a migraine make it very distinct from BPPV. Not to say that you can have you can't have both, and that's that's an important point because we know that yes. migraine is a precursor or can can make the prevalence of BPPV more common. So there is often overlap, and unfortunately, people can have both at the same time, and it can yes. look pretty ugly. Uh, unfortunately, as as many listeners would probably um, not be not in the head right now. Everyone has the right to have more than one condition uh, at the same time, Carlo, and we've obviously as practitioners seen that before. So if uh, assuming we've got a, a BPPV, uh, we've got now this uh, person attending a chiropractor or other vestibular specialist, you mentioned nystagmus, that's going to be something they're going to be looking for, so that rotary um, pulsing of the eyes. What are some of the other key tests to... Uh, so that a practitioner knows for sure, yep, it is BPPV. So one of the first tests that we we use and, and I teach in my lectures is you want to ensure that it's nothing else because nystagmus or rotary eye movements or horizontal beating movements can be a telltale sign of other conditions. And if you don't check for eye movements before you put them into that into that head position, you might be seeing a false positive. And that's mm. a really important point because you put someone in a typical position that we see for BPPV and we see, oh, the eyes are dancing and, they, and they're very symptomatic. And immediately we think, well, they must have BPPV. But did we check them in a head neutral position? So that we have to do a head neutral test first to rule out the presence of nystagmus in a neutral position. Uh, and that could be done with some, you know, some fancy eye goggles that can record eye movement, or there are other uh, little tests, other ways of doing it that we teach, but that has to be checked first. And that is almost always not performed. Mm. Um, once that's been ruled out and they don't have it, then you go into your certain positional tests. And depending on which canal We've got these, I mentioned before, the, the vestibular organ. We have these three different angled canals. Each of those canals can possibly have BPPV, but each of those canals have a different test and have a different presentation to their, to their uh, cause. So we need to be able to test each of those canals in di with different head positions. So the most common test that most people will be familiar with is called the Dix-Holpike maneuver, and that's testing the posterior canal. And by far, that's the most common. We have other canals that we test with other names that I won't go into, but they're all positionally derived to test different canals in the inner ear. Now, just about these days, everyone's into Dr. Google. So if um, if I was to Google BPPV, I might come across something called an Epley's manoeuvre. Is this something that uh, chiropractors or vestibular specialists would use? And is this something that someone can do themselves at home? Yeah, look, Epley's is 
is the treatment for a positive Dix-Hall pike. So the Dix-Hall pike, remember, is the test for posterior canal. The posterior canal makes up over 75% of all BPBV cases. So by using a maneuver, namely the Epley's maneuver, to treat the most common variant, the reality is that you're probably going to get more success than failures. But like anything, your success of treatment depends upon the accuracy of your diagnosis. So if you're seeing recurrency, recurrence in these symptoms, despite the maneuver, the reality is you're probably not doing the right maneuver if you're not testing it properly. Mm. So by chance, it's probably going to work. And certainly patients can do this at home. It's not a difficult thing, although it can be uh, quite, um, quite uh, fear-provoking to do it. But once they get past that, it, for, for most people, it, it could be quite successful. But I guess I see patients that it doesn't work for and that they mm. need more astute testing to be able to find the subtleties in it. So, um, yes, Epley's can work for many people, but it's not a one-size-fits-all. When I was young, uh, we used to have these games where you'd have a little ball bearing that you'd have to move around through a maze to get from one end to the other. When I have patients in, um, about to perform or suggest to them an Epley's manoeuvre, I describe or give that as an example. What we're trying to do is get that little crystal out of the canal where it's causing problems to another part of the inner ear where it's less likely to cause problems. Is that a good and accurate analogy? Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's, a, it's an analogy that I use as well. It's it's a bit of a Houdini trick, to be fair. Um, John Epley was the medical doctor that that first described this some years ago, and he was uh, by his own colleagues he was described as a as a charlatan, as a fraudster, because he said no way can this can a uh, a maneuver of the head and moving these little tiny crystals through a tube back into the chamber could be possible. But he showed that it was, and mm. and it is now the gold standard when it comes to treating people with BPBV. So, um, yes, you, you're correct, Anthony. What you've described is a good uh, analogy to use for patients because, you know, it's they want to know what what's going on. Why are you provoking this condition whilst doing the treatment at the same time? So, diagnosis is always important, and it, and if it is clearly someone who does have that. Um, posterior canal um, problem, and Epley's typically will work very well and has a high success rate, um, I've found. But um, how long does this last? Do these crystals naturally go away? Do they come back again? If you've had one, are you more prone to get another episode? Because even if you get that crystal out, what's to stop another crystal from going in? Yeah, it's it, keep in mind, we're not talking about one single crystal. It's normally a, a mass of many that normally contributes to it. The maneuver itself is very successful. As I said, it's the gold standard. Um, it's not uncommon to do a single maneuver uh, once and the symptoms go away. Uh, and sometimes never to return again. It could be that successful. For most though, it normally takes maybe a few sessions to do and repeat um, uh, for it to be successful. Uh, the reality is, though, and I tell patients this, the recurrence rate is unfortunately high. 
The uh, one-year rate, I think, is around 25%. And I think the two-year rate is close to 45 50%. So you've got to set people up to say, this is likely to happen again. But mm. that's okay. This is benign. We know how to work on it. Don't fear it now. We know what it is. There's some tools to help you. So reassuring a patient is a big part of what we do. Um, so that's that's important. Um, sometimes, as you mentioned, it can occur. It can um, we can get other canals can be affected, or the maneuver itself can unfortunately contaminate and move the crystals into other canals. Um, and I've seen people with multiple canals on both sides of the head. So left mm. and right side, which is very, <laughs> very challenging to manage. Doesn't happen Definitely. often, unfortunately. Um, but these things do occur. Um, and those that are more stubborn generally are the ones that um, unfortunately do need some extra help. And in my experience, you mentioned about the typical um, age range for these sorts of problems. Uh, and it is very much sort of that, well, I've, in my experience, has been that kind of 40 to 70 or maybe 50 to 70 kind of range and more common, um, unfortunately, for in females than males. Um, these are people who often don't have great balance mechanisms working anyway. And as you've said, uh, they are likely to reoccur. So these are people as well as performing an Epley's maneuver or doing something similar in practice, they're likely to benefit from sort of home care advice and maybe some balance retraining uh, type of program. So what are the typical things that you find useful for people to do on a regular basis to help prevent these problems or to maintain a really robust nervous system with respect to their balance? Well, the first thing is is just um, assisting their recovery first. Um, I often say just minimise the amount of prolonged head movement. Uh, you may want to sleep with a pillow or two underneath your head. You, won't, you may want to uh, minimise cleaning the ceiling or painting the ceiling or cleaning under the bed for a few days. Um, you know, just minimise prolonged head position in awkward, in awkward positions. Yes. Um, I certainly don't advocate a, a cervical brace, a, a, a neck collar. Um, so firstly, those sort of things will help reduce, will help recovery. What helps prevent is, is a bit debatable. Um, I've got what I use, the, the evidence sort of sways backwards and forwards and different things. Um, one of the most important thing is, is advocating the patient to move their head. Um, mm. What we don't want is is to, to, get, to have a fear avoidance, yes. for them to be super cautious and concerned about moving their head, and and that develops as a pattern, as a fear avoidance pattern there, and then they start developing other neck issues and other sequelae of that. And I often find in many many patients that their apprehension to movements over time causes more issues than the random attack of BPPV. Yes. Uh, and I see that over and over again. So I would encourage patients, keep moving. Mm. Once we get over this hurdle and we've tested it and it's clear, live your life as, as, as full as possible. Yes. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a strong bit of advice that I, I give to patients. Not always taken, unfortunately, but one that I always give. Um, there are other things like some nutrition. Some people say vitamin D and um, you know, reduce alcohol, uh, cholesterol may have an impact. 
I, I would say to you, the evidence is is moderate, but lead a, a healthy life as much as possible. Mm. Um, hydrate yourself, um, get some vitamin D, which is probably the only vitamin that seems to be consistent with BPPV. And it might be also related to the age group at which this demographic with hormones and all that that might come into it as well. I, yep. I'm not sure of the direct direct link between the vitamin D and BPPV. I wonder if it's more hormonal, particularly in females, than anything else. The jury's still out on that. What about things such as balance exercises, eye gaze um, fixation type exercises? Are are they helpful as an ongoing um, exercise program? Yeah, so in addition to the move move well and move frequent sort of model that I, I take, we also want to you know, push the body a little bit when it comes to balance restoration, particularly in that age group that you mentioned. So we do, uh, uh, we focus on in our clinic a lot of vestibular rehabilitation, which looks at balance retraining, eye movement training. We do virtual reality training as well, where we can put people in different virtual augmented real, uh, environments and we can challenge them walking down an aisle or walking downstairs or driving a car. You know, if someone's fearful and turning their head in a shopping center because they're fearful of getting BPPV, well, in a controlled environment like ours, we can put these virtual reality goggles on, we can have them walking through an aisle and they're, um, and they're starting to overcome that fear of, of, um, of moving their head and causing symptoms. Mm. All right. Well, so that's some great information uh, there, Carlo. Thank you so much for your time today on the Consult at Cairo podcast. My pleasure, Anthony. I hope that uh, information has been helpful for your audience. It certainly has. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to consult with an ACA accredited chiropractor to discuss your dizziness or vertigo, or indeed any other health issues, simply go to chiropractors.org.au. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for optimal health. I look forward to chatting with you again on our next Consult a Cairo podcast.